Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 2. Be looking at verses 7 and then 15 through 24. I'm not sure if you noticed or not, but last week I said some pretty countercultural things. Um, I said that men and women are not the same. They are designed differently and that that design is with purpose. Men are designed strong and durable to protect, provide for, and lead their wives. And women were made soft, gentle, and beautiful to aid their husband in his mission to bear and to raise children and to keep and manage the home. Is that countercultural? Yeah, a, a bit. It wasn't what you'd call a politically correct sermon. But the amazing thing is that nothing I said would have been controversial just a few short generations ago. Uh, my hard-hitting, controversial sermon would have been a big nothing burger to our great-grandparents, for certain. Society as a whole basically assumed everything I said last week and even codified it into law. Only heads of households voted in most places until the lifetime of our grandparents. My grandparents. Some of your parents, maybe even. Think about that. That is very recent history, isn't it? In the realm of human existence, just that just changed in memory of some living people. While women were able to enlist in the military, it wasn't until 2013. Now... 1920s recent history, but 2013, that's yesterday, right? It wasn't until 2013 that female service members were first allowed to enter into direct ground combat roles. A correct understanding of gender is still codified in our laws even today in some places. Praise the Lord for that. They at least only make our sons register for the draft. It shouldn't be anybody. The draft is unbiblical, but at least they only draft our sons. But many people are pushing to expand the draft to our daughters in the name of equality. And that's insanity. It's like saying to make screwdrivers and hammers equal, we need to start driving nails with screwdrivers. It's not what they're designed for. It's a denial of the created order. My question today, what I want to handle is, how did these truths go from being the generally accepted view to the controversial view? How did that happen? And I want to introduce a concept. It's known as the Overton Window. How many of you have heard of it? The Overton Window is a range of political policies that is acceptable to the mainstream population at any given time. That's what it is. We do not change culture through politics. Amen? We are not trying to just get laws passed and then enforce it on all the culture that all is completely against our views. We don't want that. But make no mistake, politics do proceed from culture and we do want to change culture to where culture demands different policies. See the difference there? It's not by the force of power or the source of the sword that we want to change things. It's by the force of truth that people demand the change. 
What will become law begins with changes of the cultural norm. That's why both culture and legal precedents are the church's report card. You want to see how the church is doing? Look around and see what society is embracing. And if culture is preaching a different message than the Scriptures and policies are being implemented that are different than what the Scriptures teach, church is failing at impacting culture with truth, with a story that unifies people. We're failing. And we're failing hard. The Overton window is named after an American policy analyst, Joseph Overton. He said that an idea's political viability depended mainly on whether it falls within this window of acceptability in society. According to Overton, the window frames the range of policies that a politician can recommend without appearing too extreme to gain or to keep public office. Don't we all know politicians are prostitutes, right? (laughs) Ultimately. They'll say what they've got to say to be elected. And they do this, and what can I say to and still get enough votes? They'll push it as far as they can, but they, the big thing, they've got to be able to get enough votes. That's why Donald Trump is not quite as pro-life this time as he was the first time. So... They don't want to be too extreme to keep or gain public office. Over time, the theory uh, said that there were six degrees of acceptance of public ideas. Roughly, you've got the unthinkable. Some things are just that is completely unthinkable. And then the radical. It's not unthinkable, but it's kind of out there. Then the acceptable, it's not to be celebrated necessarily, but hey, we shouldn't... We shouldn't intervene in that stuff. We ought to leave people alone. What they do in the privacy of their own bedrooms is nobody's business. Right. It's acceptable. Don't ask, don't tell. Then the sensible. Well, of course. And then the popular. Yeah, and if you aren't for it, you're a bad person. And then once it gets there, guess what it becomes next? The policy where they make everybody do it. Think of the changes to this window in recent history. The number of children. Used to, it was unthinkable not to want children. Now people are like, I don't want any children. That's just an inconvenience in my life, right? It's unthinkable actually to want a lot of children. See how it switched? It was, it was radical to have permanent means done or even to take birth control at one time. That was radical. It was kind of controversial. Now it's r- radical and unthinkable not to make the employer pay for it. Even if it goes against his own religious convictions, he has to pay for your birth control. See how like it switched completely on the on his head, you see it? The acceptable and sensible, the number of children, the premarital sex. Used to it was unthinkable to think that. I mean it was taboo. It was you wanted to keep that quiet. If it happened, you wanted to you didn't want anybody to find out about it. And if you were to get pregnant out of wedlock, you hurried and got married and hoped nobody figured it out. There was some hypocrisy there, wasn't there? But you didn't want anybody counting up the months. Now it's unthinkable to question anybody if that happens. Certainly would be unquestion it would be unthinkable to do church discipline on somebody who was unrepentant in their sin. Think about how it's happened with homosexuality. Women in combat. It was unthinkable to be homosexual. Then it was radical. Well, you know, they are, but, you know, maybe they should, we shouldn't have any laws about that. Guys, that was against the law until very recent history as well. Very recent history. Still on the books in some states today. 
because they've not gotten it off yet. See how the Overton window has shifted? Everything's turned completely on its head. Gay mirage, of course. I mean, marriage, mirage. So we've redefined it because it went from unthinkable to radical to acceptable to, well, of course they should. Love is love. They get their slogans, don't they? And then it becomes popular. Yay, we've got to have parades. And if you don't wave the flag in the parade, then you're a bad person. And then it becomes policy where you have to perform the weddings. It's the Overton window. Communisms went through this same thing. It was unthinkable, but now it's becoming popular. Before long, do you not think it will become policy? Discrimination based off of ethnicity. At one time, it happened. Then it became unthinkable. And now it's thinkable again, just in the other direction. You have to do it. Well, the question is, is there a such thing as truth? Well, usually it's just popular opinion that most people think is truth. The Overton window has shifted dramatically. Shifting the Overton window involves proponents of policies outside the window, people that aren't in politics, persuading the public to expand the window. The current cultural norms are aggressively challenged with, and a new truth is proposed. Now, this is known as the Hegelian dialectic. Anybody ever heard of that? Sociology here for you. You got Ernst Hegel and you have the thesis. This is what's right. This is what is. But then the Hegelian dialectic, it says, no, no, no. The antithesis, the opposite is true. The complete opposite. They turn it on its head and they challenge what has been acceptable. The thesis, they challenge it is actually wicked. And then there's a synthesis usually somewhere in the middle of those two things where we can agree to, agree to, to, to this, we can agree on this middle ground between the two. And it has for generations moved farther and farther to the left, away from God's Word, farther and farther. A new, farther left antithesis just keeps being proposed. And then we have no truth in the church anymore that we will stand on to push back against it, to reclaim any ground. So we just say, okay, we'll give you this much ground because we've given up saying our story is actually true and beautiful and you should believe it. This new viewpoint is put forth advocating a positive vision for the world. I'm going to tell you this. Only the left seems to have a positive vision for the world. The right doesn't have a vision for the world. They just want to give up as little ground as possible, as slowly as possible. Both sides are headed toward the cliff. One's going 100 miles an hour and the other's going 50, but it's the same cliff. And nobody's saying, no, turn around. There's truth over here. There's salvation over here. There's solace over here. There's blessing over here. Because the policies that they say, that the policies that I'm going to actually preach on today, I'm going to slam your fingers in the Overton window today. I want to warn you. You're going to be like, whoa, this is, ins- I'm, I, this is not what we normally do. Usually we just go through Matthew. But today we're going to Genesis and we're going back to the created wor- order. And you're going to hear things that are going to hit you hard because you're more impacted by the stories of the world. The Scarlet Letter... Romeo and Juliet and the Little Mermaid than you are Adam and Eve and Noah and Jonah and the whale and David and Goliath. We've given up, we've embraced the stories that they say. Notice how that the stories, people care more about stories than anything. The Scarlet Letter, you know that one? 
woman caught in promiscuity and then they used to put a scarlet letter on you to shame you and then you know she's shamed and she's kind of ostracized and put out and the end of the story we found out that actually the person that she, she had been uh, immoral with was the pastor and what a hypocrite see that church is just they're all a bunch of hypocrites and they these truth claims and we need to not shame these people because we're all just a bunch of sinners anyway so then hey, over time the Overton window shifts and of course they're going to have premarital sex. We better make sure we pay for their condoms and the birth control. And we normalize it. Teenage pregnancy shoots through the roof. Unwed pregnancies shoot through the roof. Single mothers shoot through the roof. Why? Because we gave ground to a different story than what the Scriptures teach. So I'm going to slam your fingers in the Overton window. And what I ask for is if you agree with it, say amen. And if you don't, be a, be a good liberal. By that, I mean listen and think about it and say, hey, this is their story and I need to consider that maybe they're right. Consider it, right? The westernized world, in the westernized world, the story, but traditionally culture derives its story from scriptures from priests and prophets, but our pastors long ago retreated from this fight. And in the westernized world, the story derives from movies, television, public schools, the new cultural priesthood comprised of teachers, scientists, entertainers, and sports stars. You want to know what you should believe? You've got to go listen to LeBron James because obviously that guy's brilliant. He's got it figured out. And Travis Kelsey. Two things at once. People are moved more by stories than by arguments, and boy, do they tell their stories. Little Mermaid, Romeo and Juliet, Scarlet Letter, a show on ESPN, a documentary called Matt Can Wrestle. And man, they pull at your heartstrings because this little transgender girl or a boy that thinks it's a girl wants to wrestle with girls, and they're not letting him, the bunch of mini heads. With all the sad little music in the background to make pull at your heartstrings. Well, she just wants to wrestle. <laughs> and the stories move people. They move them. They move that window of acceptable di discourse. And then you're the bad guy if you say, no, 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 this is insanity. How dare you? Because what was unthinkable has now the other side of the story, the other side of it became unthankful, unthinkable. Even our church leaders have bought into the lie that we shouldn't tell people that our story is true like any other fact of history is true. Guys, this is either true or we don't need to meet here anymore. If this book's not true, what are we doing? There's a lot better hobbies. If this isn't true, stop. But if it's true, it's not just true for me and true for you. It's true for everybody in the whole world. It's reality. Who are we, who are we to say our story is true? Or, you know, it's became unthinkable to say that Christianity is true. Hasn't it? or that it has any implications for how anyone else in the world should live their lives. We claim to be gospel-centered, but our gospel centrality is more like a vase full of flowers instead of the an axle in the middle of a wheel. Now, you know, gospel-centered, you know, think of a vase in the middle of a table. I mean, it looks pretty and everything, but it has nothing to do with the function of the table. But if we're gospel-centered and we're saying, hey, everything's connected here and the whole of society, the whole of the world gets its stability from the center of this axle, one of them Satan likes and the other one uh, he is scared to death of. 
We want a gospel centrality that's like flowers today instead of like an axle that says, no, everything's impacted by this. All of Christ for all of life. Satan wants a gospel that's bound, and he's fine with it being bound in the center. As long as it's bound, he don't care. It can be bound in the center or anywhere else. But if it's bound, he's happy. We proclaim a gospel that's unbound. The church stopped making disciples. The the Great Commission is not tell people Jesus died so they can go to heaven. The Great Commission is teaching people to observe all things whatsoever He has commanded, to make disciples of all the nations. And we stopped that. We We don't teach people what the Scriptures say about how we live our lives. We stopped short of sanctification. We don't want anybody to image Christ. We're fine with, hey, you are what you are and it's just fine and God loves you just as you are. As long as you believe He died for you, that's okay. and You don't really need to worry about how you live your life. And it's leading to societal collapse and decay. The good news of justification by faith alone was twisted to propagate the lie that any teaching on right and wrong was legalistic and needed to be avoided at all costs. Far before there were women serving as pastors, there were effeminate men utterly failing their charge standing as so-called pastors who didn't have the courage to say something that was countercultural because he sure as heck didn't want to have to go to work out there anyway because he actually couldn't provide for his family because he was too weak and effeminate and pathetic. So to keep people coming that were good tithers, he'll just say what they want to hear, tickle their ears, so they keep dropping the checks in the box. It's called cowardice in French. We have to stand up, unashamed of our story, and take these formerly popular positions that have become unthinkable and put them back on the table. Amen? Amen. We have the superior story. You know why it's superior? Because it's true. And living according to the implications of that story and the law that flows out of it is the only way back to God's covenantal blessing on our society. And that takes us to where we ground marriage. Remember, everything I say today, it's it's going to hit. It's going to be a little bit slamming your fingers in the window, that Overton window. Bear with me. But Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. I'm not going to read 8 through 14, but in 8 through 14 we see the creation and description of the Garden of Eden. Picking up at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and, he, and as he slept, he took out one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man, and he brought her to the man. 
And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I'm going to break this into three points this morning of the man independent, the woman introduced, and then marriage instituted. We're going to begin in verse 7 with the man independent. Then the Lord, verse 7, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Although man being independent is not ideal, God did allow and ordain it temporarily in the garden, didn't he? There was man with no woman for a time. Under God, man is his own protector, his own provider, and his own leader. That is to say, he doesn't need a head or a covering. He's responsible before God to stand on his own two feet. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. Is that, once again, something that slams the fingers in the Overton window? Absolutely. You read these things. Do we believe the whole Bible, or do we believe just the parts we want? The Bible's not a buffet line. You don't get to take the parts you like and kick out the parts you don't. Head means ruler or representative, one who is responsible and one will give an account for. So the Lord Jesus is the head of every man and will give an account for every man. Does it sound odd to you that the Lord Jesus will give an account for you? As messed up as we are, that he'll give an account for all of my mess-ups? Does that sound odd? Guys, that's the gospel. He bears the responsibility for us not being strong enough or good enough, for us being fallen. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast him out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I shall lose nothing. He is accountable and responsible, and he will do a good job. We are his treasure. He won't lose us. No one can pluck us out of our Father's hand. What good news is that? That he is our representative. He takes our sins upon Himself. Just like in the garden after the sin, God said, Adam, where art thou? When we stand before the throne of God, it'll be Christ, where art thou? And He'll say, I bore the punishment for them. He's the head in that way. It's beautiful, isn't it? But there was a brief time where a man was in the Garden of Eden with no one to give an account for but himself standing on his own two feet before God, charged with a task that was impossible for him to carry out alone. That task we covered some last week, the dominion mandate. Verse 15, we see one part of that. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Remember the three aspects of the dominion mandate. The man was created to, in the image of God, and what that entailed was to rule over and subdue. We had the capacity to go out and rule over and subdue the whole world, the whole earth. To multiply and fill the earth with image bearers, to bear children. And lastly, to keep and to till, to guard and till and cultivate the garden. This keep and till, here God himself cultivates an actual garden in verses 8 through 14. 
within the untamed, unsubdued, uncultivated world. He cultivates a garden and he places man. He gives him a head start. This is here. Here's a picture of what it is. And he places man in that cultivated garden. The whole world needs to be cultivated, but I'm going to do this part. And now it's your job to go out and cultivate all the rest of the world. And he's placed there alone to do that. Guys, you looked around. Did you know the earth is pretty big? We got one man charged to cultivate the whole thing. And he was already responsible to rolling over and subduing. In verses 16 and 17, he warns Adam not to take the fruit. Eve isn't even there yet, but Adam's told, don't take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you'll surely die. And then in verse 20, we see him rolling over and subduing in the garden having authority over the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. He is giving names to them. Adam was exercising the authority that God said he had as an image bearer in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Adam's doing that by naming them all and Eve's not even there yet. He's doing it alone. Man was on mission before Eve was ever created. Men, be on mission before you're married. Don't sit around playing video games and eating Cheetos in your mom's basement until you're 30. Be on mission. Be doing something before God brings you to life. Effeminate pining songs are beneath our dignity. Like, that. how am I supposed to live without... You're welcome. <laughs> how am I supposed to live without you? Adam lived without her. Everything I do, I do it for you, Brian Adams. Sounds good. Terrible song. Whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. And enjoy the wife. Love your wife. Treasure your wife. But do not make an idol out of your wife. If you make a God out of your wife, she'll never respect you. She may believe that she wants to be your everything, but she truly doesn't. She wants to join you in accomplishing something bigger than both of you. Be on mission. She wants to look to you and depend on you as her head and her covering. Say, I don't want that. Well, some, some women who have been masculinized by the false stories of our culture and are going against their own created instincts don't want that anymore. But that's in them, inherent to their nature and their being. She doesn't want a whipped little boy man who has no direction and purpose without her. Single man, get to work now. Develop a vision. Rule over and subdue as much as you can. And then as soon as possible, take a wife to help you with it. Why? Because the task is too big. We see that next, don't we? That Verse 18, man is insufficient. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. You know what I believe reading that? When I read this, to me it means that it's not good. For man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 20. And after all the animals he's named, of course, there was not a helper suitable for him. God charged Adam to rule over and subdue the entire earth and gave him a start. He cultivated a relatively small, beautiful, and subdued garden space and he placed him in it to cultivate and till it. That task was huge, alone. Many of you have worked gardens, haven't you? A lot of people work gardens. 
And let me tell you, Eden was bigger than your garden. And Adam had less equipment than you have. He needed help. Multiplying and filling would be helpful. More image bearers, more people created in the image of God who had the capacity to rule over and subdue and to keep and to till. And he needed someone oriented to the home. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? Somebody oriented. I'm going to take responsibility for this already tamed place here while you go out into the unknown and subdue greater places to enlarge our imprint. He needed that. A neged is the word here, suitable. A helper suitable. That which is opposite. That which corresponds. It carries with it the meaning of that which perfectly fills what is lacking in you alone. But there was nothing like that among the cattle, the birds, and the beasts. So God acted creatively one last time. What was the last thing God ever made? Women. The icing on the cake. Prettiest and best part. It's my favorite. He acted creatively one more time. And this is where we see woman introduced in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man. And he brought it to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. little side note, getting ahead into like Genesis 2 and 3. It shows the implicitly the hierarchy of creation. Once again, I'm going to slam your fingers in the Overton window. God, the man the woman, the animals, including the serpent. But this was reversed in the fall. The woman listens to the serpent. And then the man listens to the wife. And no one listens to God. That's what leads to ruin. Is when we upset God's design, it leads to ruin. Let's make a few ob- observations here that man predates woman. Adam was created first, Genesis 2-7 and 18 through 23. But clearly, Adam had a protective role in the garden prior to the creation of Eve. To keep, that word keep, to cultivate and keep, the word keep is, means, and one implication of that is to guard. We're also, he also had a teaching role. God taught Eve God's law. I'm, not, I'm sorry, Adam taught Eve God's law. God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he didn't repeat himself after he created Eve. Who told Eve? So that she could repeat it in Genesis 3, 2 and 3. Adam. I think he added to it. It seems that he probably added to it because neither shall you touch it, Eve added, when she responded to the serpent. We'll turn to 1 Timothy 2.13 soon enough to show another important implication of that fact. But we also see woman was taken from man. He predates woman and he was ta- she was taken from man. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which had been taken from man. Adam was created from the ground for the ground. From the dust to till the dirt and to subdue the earth. Eve was taken from Adam for Adam. Once again, Overton window. Slam that down. 
her orientation and charge was toward her helping her husband and managing the home that he has subdued. 1 Corinthians 11, 8-9. You say, I don't, like, I don't think that's an implication from what you're reading here in Genesis. 1 Corinthians 11, 8-9. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, disagrees with you. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the sake of man. Is that what the Scriptures say? The woman's not to be independent. It's not healthy for her to be without a covering, without someone protecting and providing for her. It's not healthy. Did I say they couldn't make it? No, I said it wasn't good for them. And woman was given to the man. He brought her to the man. Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and is not a result of sin. Eve was created to help manage what he subdued, to help him fulfill the enormous calling that he truly couldn't do on his own. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. We also find that woman was named by man in verse 23. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. We actually see Adam name her twice. Here, right after she was created, Adam names her woman, which means taken from man. That's what it means. And her name there is according to her nature. She with him is an image bearer of God. The masculine and the feminine together fully bear the image of God. And he names her woman. She is one with me. She's taken from me. She's not taken, she's not separate, a different creature like the beasts of the field that were created independently of me from the dirt like I was created but independently from me. She was actually taken from me and bears the image of God like I do. And then he names her again after the fall, this time according to her function. The man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. Woman, y'all, women, you all have a superpower. Did you all know that? You can create image bearers of God. Knit together in your womb. It's not a parasite. It's an image bearer. God has ordained that you create people, image bearers, to help fulfill the dominion mandate. I can't do that. And women can. God made the woman as a necessary component to fulfill the dominion mandate. Man alone. It's not good for man to be alone. He can't do this. You are life givers who multiply the image of God throughout creation. We'll return to that, but let's put what we've covered so far together with some biblical theology. Post-file particularly, how should we as fathers understand our daughters? Let's look at the hierarchy of family government. God always intends a woman to be under the protection, provision, and leadership of a man. Overton window again. Just keep getting your fingers. Move them. Just move them out the way. Man was in the garden alone. Woman was never left without a covering. A young girl is provided for and protected by her father. But the thing about fathers is, post-fall, you know what happens to us fathers? We, we get older. We are older and then we get older. And the older we get, the weaker we get. Do you know that? The less able we are to provide and to protect and to lead. Not only do our bodies begin going downhill, but our minds. The fog starts, doesn't it? You can't think like you used to be able to. 
You can't chart. You can't plan. You can't go forward. It, 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 you, we deteriorate. We're going back to the dust from where we came. And a wise father who loves his daughter is preparing her for marriage so he can pass his mantle to an able and worthy young man as he ages beyond his ability to provide for her those needs. You should be preparing your daughters for marriage. You're doing them a disservice if you're not preparing your daughters for marriage. And if you're not actively trying to help them find a suitable man, not some guy with nice hair and a nice body that might turn her head and have a slick tongue, be able to woo her off of her feet because she can, he can say the right things. A real man with a mission going forward to rule over and to do the earth to the glory of God and her joining him in that mission so he can protect and provide for her like God designed. Men, that's your charge. We need... We see the authority of husbands over wives not only explicitly taught throughout the Scriptures and not only observable in natural law, but also we see it in this narrative. There's a relationship between age, origin, and authority. Acts 17, 24. God who made the world and all things in it since He is Lord of heaven and earth, the Ancient of Days. He's, he is the ultimate authority because He predates everything and He created everything. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus also, we see it in Colossians 1, 5-17, but notice this in Matthew 22, 42-45. What do you think about the Christ? They asked Jesus. Whose son is he? And they said to him, I'm sorry, Christ asked them, Who, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? There's this idea that if they're younger, if they proceed from you, they can't be an authority over you. Jesus in, invoked that idea, didn't he? It's also about men with women in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. This is... Egalitarians don't like this text. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. 1 Timothy 2, 11. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. That's why it says, rooted in the created order. Anything to do with the fall? Not, not, not that part. In the created order. And, and then it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. But, that's, women will be preserved through the bearing of children. Their role in society, it's okay. They don't have to be leaders. They'll be preserved. They'll be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. That's what the Bible says. Once again, is it a buffet line or do we take all of Scripture for all of life? And then the naming principle. Who named Adam? God implied authority over Adam. Who named Eve? Adam. Twice. Woman and Eve. And then named Seth. And all the children. Is every man an authority over every woman? Absolutely not. If you boss my wife around, you've got me to contend with. Every woman's not an authority over every man. But every woman is to have a man. 
Who is the authority then? Well, you have the transfer of authority and responsibility. Why does the husband have responsibility or authority over the wife? Because sometimes the wife can be older than the man. You said, well, age had something to do with it. Well, the authority that a husband has over the wife is not an authority based off of that. It's an authority that's transferred from her father. The, the young man, as we see later, leaves father and mother and is on his own for a time. But the woman is under the authority and care of her father. And that authority and care, the responsibility, is transferred from the father to a husband. You say, where do you get that? First of all, God brought her to Adam gave her to him to be responsible for her. And then when she sinned first, who did he come after? Adam, where art thou? Why? Because he had the responsibility for her failures. It was him. In Adam I'll die, not in Eve, even though she took the fruit. But also, Jeremiah 29.6, Take wives and begat sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. Do you give your sons to, do- to, to their wives? No. A, wa- a daughter is given to the son. Who gives this woman to be this man's bride? It's still in our marriage ceremonies unless you've eliminated it because the Overton window shifted so much it smacks against your modern sensibilities. Exodus 22, 16-17. This one hits us hard. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price to be her wife, to be his wife. He has to pay full dowry. He has to marry her. But the father, if he utterly refuses to give her to him, who has the decision on whether he becomes her wife or not? If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay the money according to the bride price of virgins, but he, she stays in the father's household because he says, just because she's pregnant with your kid, I ain't letting you raise my grand youngins. I'll raise him myself. And the grandfather took responsibility for the son as if it was in his own household. Well, that's not how it's in our laws today. No, we've shifted our policy to a new narrative that rejects everything I'm telling you here. It's also in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, 34-38. Read that on your own time. It's why in our culture a woman takes her husband's last name. The father's authority and ownership of his daughter is transferred to the husband. She bore her father's name and now she bears her husband's name. To escape the patriarchy, many women say, I'm keeping my maiden name, which is her dad's name. Young ladies, be dutiful daughters who are learning to be suitable spouses. Titus 2, 3-5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious, not gossips, not enslaved to much wine. Little wine, but not much. <laughs> teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. What direction should we, the older women, be pushing their daughters toward, encouraging them toward, equipping them for, preparing them for, teaching them to be consumed with? What does it say? Encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. We've gotten to a place now where that is so taboo, the Word of God is dishonored, and I can read the Word of God, and it, it has a people have a visceral reaction to what God's Word says. It's became dishonored because we've forsaken it, even Christians. Let's move now, though, the marriage instituted. For this reason, 
a man shall leave, this is verse 24, his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This for this reason, since woman is taken from man and bears God's image as much as he does, since she is the neged, that which perfectly fills what is lacking in man alone, for this reason, since all this is true, since finally, instead of one of the beasts of the field made from the ground, I've brought someone taken from your very rib, flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone, for that reason, since that's happened, what needs to happen? A man shall leave his father and mother. This phrase can't mean that the man is not married unless he departs from his father's house. It was customary in Israel for a man to remain, not leave in the father's house, often even after he took a wife. The, the leave here is not a permanent departure necessarily, but a venture to go out and obtain a wife, to go out and pursue. From heaven, Jesus came and pursued his holy bride. You men, you image him in going out and pursuing a bride. You find a wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It carries the idea of pursuit. A man reaches a certain age and he has a desire to marry. He then leaves the home of his father and mother and seeks a wife. Young men do not put off the pursuit of a wife. I'm telling you this, young men do not put off the pursuit of a wife. If you're not ready, ready yourself. Become the man you're supposed to be. Pursue through the young lady's father. If you're not suitable, it's his job to protect his daughter from you or to help you see where you need to grow to become suitable. Jacob had to run, like, work for a long time to get old Rachel, didn't he? Fourteen years oh, that he ended up having to work. Laban called the shots, didn't he? And that young man jumped through whatever hoops it took to get that wife that he wanted. Young men, be a man. Pursue through the Father. Honor and respect his position. The fact that he's given responsibility to God for his daughter. Recognize that and pursue. But one of the purposes of marriage is to help you avoid from fornication and lust. Postponing marriage to later in life is a bad idea. First of all, you get hardened in your own patterns. It's better for you to mature and grow up together alongside one another. And the likelihood of you not being pure sexually is tremendous. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, concerning the things which you wrote of me, it's not good. It, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let every man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Being involved in a highly committed, exclusive relationship before you're ready to marry is like going shopping with no money. Either you leave frustrated or you take something that doesn't belong to you. You don't need a girlfriend if you can't get married. Why? Because you're asking for trouble. Your hormones, you're a man. And you end up crossing lines that you shouldn't cross. This is Michael Foster. The devil is for fornication, adultery, and every kind of devious sexual immorality. He loves sex like tin-pot dictators love foreign aid. He hijacks something meant for good and twists it for his own purposes. The foreign aid was meant to buy food and feed starving people, but the tin-pot dictator uses it to buy weapons to subjugate his own people. Sex was meant to knit two people together and fill the world with more servants of Christ, and Satan uses it to alienate people and fill the world with more slaves of lust and create fatherless homes. You know what our 
prisons are full of children from fatherless homes. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul warned married couples not to forego sex for long so that Satan would not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex rightly ordered is unitive and fruitful. Sex perverted is the source of division and barrenness. The latter is the sort of sex that Satan loves because the former is the sort that he hates. And his hatred goes far beyond mere intercourse. He hates the whole system of biological sex. He hates the whole righteously embodied expression of what we call gender. He is the enemy of male and female. Why? Because he hates the image of God. And that's what sex done rightly in the context of marriage produces is image bearers in a home where the full image of God is displayed with both the masculine and the feminine and they grow up in that and they image God better that way than they ever can in single parent households. Modern family shows like that want to make all the families normal. Every other family is, insu- is, is insufficient and the biblically ordered family is superior. They leave father and mother and they cleave to his wife. He's told to cleave or be joined to his wife. Leave and cling are terms commonly used in the context of covenant. In Deuteronomy 28.20 and Hosea 4.10, not doing so is indicating of covenant breach. So when a man marries that wife, he cleaves to her and is joined to her. The word cleaves means to adhere to or to become attached to. The idea is that you're being glued together with something. But, but that glue that's spoken of here, it, that, this stuff's gorilla glue. Okay? It, it ain't that glue that, you know, you, you glue it and then it falls right back off at the same part where it's supposed to be connected. No, it's that kind of glue that connects it so much and you cannot any longer separate it without breaking and doing ba- damage to both parts that were alone. They become one flesh. Marriage and family are the divine ideal for carrying out the dominion mandate. As we noted, Jesus' appeal to the, uh, to the garden on the basis of his teaching on marriage and divorce, one man with one woman for life. That's what we noted, remember, in the sermon in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus looks back to this as his model for marriage. They said, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes directly from this verse. So they are no longer two but one flesh and what God has joined together what does he tell us? Let no man separate. Before they made gay mirage, they made marriage that's more like a contract that's easy to get into and easy to get out of. No fault divorce. Nobody did anything wrong. There's no reason to dissolve the marriage, but we have irreconcilable differences and we're just going to throw our covenant we made before God and man to the side with nobody at fault. That does not exist any more than gay marriage does. The New Testament speaks of it as a welding together. A husband must adhere to his wife in such a way that he becomes one flesh with her. Just as literally as Eve was bone of Adam's bone and flesh of his flesh, so also is marriage. Eve was by virtue of her creation bound together with Adam. Such speaks of the indispensable place of Eve, but also every woman who marries. She becomes a part of her husband emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. And physically. Jessica and I, we've gotten to the point 20 years in almost that we think in the same thoughts after each other. I, she knows what I'm thinking and I know what she's thinking. It's amazing how that takes place, isn't it? Anybody that's been married for a while, you know that happens, doesn't it? You think your same thoughts after one another. But also, one way that 
the most obvious ways that this one flesh takes place, they become one flesh, is the production of godly offspring. Her egg and your sperm create a person that's part of you and part of her. Will this man or woman be the kind of person... You should be asking this. Hey, not how good looking is he, not how smooth he is, not how cool he is, not any of that stuff. You should be asking... Is this man or woman the kind of person who will help me train up our children to live to the glory of God? That's what you want to know. This is a multi-generational purpose. The world says that it's all about self. God says it's all about Him. Malachi 2, 14-15 For what reason did God make them one? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did He not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why did He make them one? Because He seeks godly offspring. Another purpose of marriage, guys, is that aspect of the dominion mandate, to multiply and fill. A childless marriage is a tragedy. It is. Sometimes it's an unavoidable tragedy because God has closed the womb and you grieve over that like you see it happen in the Old Testament. They always grieved over it as a tragedy, didn't they? And prayed that God would open the womb. Somebody that gets married not wanting children, there's something broken in your brain. You've denied the created order. You're, you don't understand why you're supposed to be married to begin with. You're not, even, you're not even thinking about how can I fulfill the dominion mandate? How can I rule over and subdue in the world? How can I keep and till that which has been left? And how can I multiply image bearers to go out and spread the name and fame of God and Jesus Christ in generations that follow after I'm dead and gone? No, because you want to have nicer stuff, thicker carpet, faster cars. You want the freedom, which is actually bondage, a freedom of just empty pursuits, pleasure. Children are a blessing, not an inconvenience. People, you got six kids. My goodness, are you ever going to stop? I don't know. I don't know how many the Lord will give me. Thankful for everyone I've got. If I ever have one I don't like, I might stop having them. I don't know. But there, I'm kidding. Even there, I'm joking. They're not an inconvenience. Children are a heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is His reward. They're not a curse. They're not an expense. They're my retirement plan. They'll take care of me when I'm old and feeble. Because that's their duty. You find that in Scripture too. I can't go into that today. But there's a, a cohesive unit. It's not society's job to take care of me when I get old. It's me that I have children that take care of me when I get old. And can't do it anymore. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who fills his quiver with them. They shall not be ashamed, nor shall they speak but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. See, everything I'm reading here is just straight out of Scripture, but it just slams your fingers in that Overton window because we've bought a different narrative, haven't we? It hits wrong over and over again. These building blocks of society are a, if not the, major calling of our lives. We must shoot these arrows out in the world. Not just offspring, but godly offspring. Your children can be more of an indictment against you then a glory to God if you just have a bunch of children but you don't train them in the Christian worldview. Malachi 4, last thing in the Old Testament. 
5 through 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite you with a curse. We want to change the world. We keep trying to go out there and change the world by just altering people's viewpoints out there. You want to change the world? Have children and do your duty to raise children who love and fear God. To bring them up in the fear of the admonition of the Lord. Preach and teach these things to your own family. And over generations, you'll change the world. Satan hates image bearers. He wants to castrate people so they can't reproduce. He wants to make men women and women men, uh, taking hormone blockers and having surgeries to mutilate themselves. He wants women marrying women where you can't have any offspring and men marrying men where you can't have any offspring. He, hey, leave them alone. They'll quit reproducing. We keep on and look what's going to happen if we embrace what the Bible says is our duty and His design for the family. We don't have to go out and fight wars. We fight an ideological war based off of a narrative, a story that is true, and we'll unite God's people together and send out those arrows. Everyone here has probably heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, he was a great theologian, great pastor, very influential. But not only was he a remarkable preacher, professor, and pastor, and author, he also was a loving family man. He was devoted to his wife Sarah for 31 years until his death in 1751. He led in fam regular family worship and oversaw the education of his 11 children. Moreover, his was a multi-generational legacy. Much more influential than his extraordinary life. There was a study done in 1900 of his descendants. He died in 1758 and 1900. So in 142 years, they charted his descendants. There were 1,400 of them. They included 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, the dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, the dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public offices, including three U.S. senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, and a vice president of the United States and a controller of the U.S. Treasury. What's his legacy? Not the books he wrote. What made a bigger impact? Not sinners in the hand of an angry God that most of your college students have read. More impact was made through those 1,400 descendants. You can't even begin to chart it. And that was in 1900. How many do you think it is now? You want to impact culture? Have children and train them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Or are they too big an inconvenience for you? We're going to look into theories of marriage relationship. Um, the biblical patriarchy was the thesis for generations. The biblical vision for home and society. It's basically what I've touched on from these texts and other texts throughout the scriptures. The antithesis came along, which was egalitarianism. And what did they do? Well, they completely denied gender distinctives. There's no design and no role distinctions at all. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. And I can't either. I, I, I just can't breastfeed worth a flip. My womb is never going to produce any children. And you're never going to bench press what I'm going to, most likely. You're not going to be able to fight like I can fight or bear the weight that I can bear. Why? Because distinctives. But they deny that. Equality. They believe in equality, but 
their equality is sameness, not in worth. I don't deny the equal in worth, and we're both image bearers of God, but we're not the same. We're not designed for the same thing. It's like twisting a nail or hitting a screw with a hammer. Sure, you might do a little bit of progress, but you're doing damage to, the, to what you're trying to do by hitting a, hit a screw with a hammer, and what do you do? Or you might drive it into the wood a little bit, but it's probably going to damage the wood, and it's not what it's designed for, is it? Ignore the design and it hinders effectiveness. And it destroys what is supposed to rule over and subdue. You can't be motivated on ruling over and subduing, keeping and tilling, and multiplying and filling if you confuse these roles. You end up with people saying, a woman has to have a right over her own body to kill her unborn child. Of course she does. Because it's her own body. And how is she going to go out and be the CEO of a company if we don't do that? I mean, it's just sensible. It was unthinkable. But then it became radical. Then it became acceptable. Then it became, oh, this is just sensible. And now it's popular. And what happens next? It's just policy. Before long, it'll be like Chinese government where you have a one-child policy where they make you kill your babies. Because children are a blight on the planet, not a blessing to the planet. That's where it heads. The synthesis then took place in the church primarily of complementarianism. We think of that as the conservative position. That's not the conservative position. Biblical patriarchy was the thesis. And then you had egalitarianism as the antithesis. And then you synthesized in the middle. On the side of headship, well, yeah, but with a caveat. They recognized the existence of distinctives. They recognized God's good design, but they limited it to only to the home and the church. So at, at first, at one time, you didn't have female pastors in the complementarian circles, although that's changing now if you notice. Notice how the, the complementarians, now they're soft complementarians because they did another synthesis. Now they're soft complementarians. So hey, we've got to have some, you know, we're, we're, we're going to call them minister of and let them be pastors and shh, 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 in the Southern Baptist Convention. Recognizes headship, but it emphasizes, it emphasizes servant leadership. For the most part, he serves as a tiebreaker in disagreements, if that. But if he's a really good, loving husband, he should die to himself and give her her, give her, her way. Not do what's right and make the decision, bear the brunt, and say, hey, even if this makes you mad and I'm going to suffer for it, it's the right thing and I'm going to lead God help me. No, no, no. If she pitches a big enough fit, he should die to himself and give her her way. That's servant leadership. And home, work, job, education, almost everything else follows the world's model with a Christian spin. But we must insist the creation order applies everywhere. Gender roles are rooted in creation. God specifically designed men physically, mentally, and emotionally to provide for, protect, and lead his wife and children. And he made the woman to support her husband to bear children and care for the home. Based on this creation order, we know husbands have authority in the home. We know that only men can serve as elders and pastors in prohibiting women from teaching and exercising authority over men in the church. Paul appealed to Adam being formed first and then, uh, and then Eve and to Eve being the one who was deceived. That's 1 Timothy 2, 12-15, which we've already read. Now how in the world could we arrive at the conclusion that these creational truths only apply in the home and the church? But that's what complementarianism's kind of done. 
Wouldn't this distinctive design be relevant in every era of life? A woman is still a woman when she's running for political office, isn't she? Or the same nature that prohibits her from having authority in the home and the church is the same nature that she carries into the public life. This is Zach Garris. A woman doesn't have authority over her husband and she cannot be a leader in Christ's church. But according to modern Christian thinking, she can have civil authority over men in her city and neighborhood. The Apostle Paul Peter says that a woman is the weaker vessel and should therefore be treated with understanding and honor by her husband. But according to the modern Christian, she can carry that weakness into the battlefield and into the crime bust. Let's read 1 Timothy 2, 11-15 one more time. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The same creation order that leads Paul to prohibit women from teaching and ruling over men in the, sun, in the church is the same creation order that relegates all of life. And one thing the creation order teaches is that the nature of authority is masculine. Authority is by nature a masculine thing. It's assertive. It's dominant. Michael Byrd, an egalitarian... He makes some good observations in critiquing narrow complementarianism, as he calls it. I think it's worth pointing out that complementarians today toned down the full implications of their view, and herein is the weakness of their position. A woman can write a commentary on Hebrews to be read by men, but cannot preach or teach on Hebrews. A woman can be president, a prime minister, a CEO, a general, or a police officer, but she cannot serve as a pastor. The problem I have here is that some complementarians appeal to Genesis and the created order to show that it is inherently wrong for a woman to be in a position of authority over a man, and yet they only apply that restriction to church life or Sunday worship. If it's such a clear violation of God's ordaining of creation, for a woman to have authority over a man, then this should apply in all spheres of life, whether in business, government, politics, civil service, or church, because God is sovereign over all institutions and all of life is to be lived before and under God. That's an egalitarian. He's trying to say you should forsake complementarianism and come over to the side of egalitarianism, but he ain't wrong in his observation. He's just wrong in what he says what needs to happen because of it. He's spot on in his criticism of narrow or soft complementarianism. It is inconsistent in its application of the created order, acting as if we can make some distinctions between the church and the rest of society. Bird says his criticisms only apply to some some complementarians, though it's probably accurate to say it applies to the vast majority of them. Even the prolific complementarian author, Wayne Grudem, has said that women may exercise authority over men in politics and business. He said he'd be fine with a woman president. A woman's not designed to be the head. She's not emotionally, mentally, or spiritually designed for that responsibility to be placed on her shoulders. She should be protected. It's crushing to have to give an account for the buck to stop with you. It's crushing when somebody's coming at you, isn't it? And you're having to give an account and defend and fight. A woman without a masculine covering faces that responsibility with the weight of accountability falling on her and the result is a hardening. A a masculinization of the woman is the unavoidable result. Although she may be able to do the job, she cannot do the job without losing something intrinsic to God's design for her as a woman. She becomes hard. You can see her features harden. You can see her become more assertive. 
The softness fades away. You can see the hardness on them in their eyes and how they interact. A woman without a compassionate head will suffer the same fate. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Women, men, don't be harsh with your wives. She's not designed to, to, for you to beat on her like she's a hand, an anvil. You delicately and gently lead her. Why? Because it's as someone with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit that is necessary for her to fulfill her calling as a woman is crushed. And the result is a hardened, mannish shell of this once delicate woman. The femininity is lost and it's tragedy. Bird's solution is to abandon complementarianism completely for some form of egalitarianism. However, the alternative solution is to maintain consistency by embracing what the Bible teaches and what was commonplace just a few short generations ago. The new thesis in culture is egalitarianism, or even farther, that there's no such thing as gender. That's honestly to the point to where gender is a social construct, is now what's popular. And it's what's entering into our policy today. That's the new thesis that has won the day. What do we do? We have to unashamedly tell our story. We have to provide not compromise, not, well, we'll give up just a little bit more ground, but go back to ground we surrendered generations ago and say, no, this is God's Word and this is the positive view, this is the positive vision for society and it's what God says in His Word and Jesus put His stamp of approval on it by living perfectly according to the law and dying to pay for our sins and rose again and now gives us the Spirit so that we can go forward as Christian soldiers marching as the war with this message and win. Why are we losing? Because we won't even tell the message because we're, we're ashamed of it. We're ashamed because what I've said in this sermon is now the unthinkable. So you're effeminate, skinny jeans wearing pastors. They won't say it. I don't want the guns of culture pointed at me. I want to be a faithful presence. I don't want to lose popularity. My church might not get big. <laughs> Have a bunch of babies. It'll get big. <laughs> God's truth will stand. We're not going to turn this around in a day. It took generations to give it up of us zipping our lips and not saying what God's Word says because we were ashamed of it. It's going to take time. But we're going to teach it in our homes, to our children, and in our churches. Live it out in culture. Show the workability of it. And God will bless it. You know why? Because covenantal blessings follow obedience to God's law. And we'll get out blessed. And we'll tell people why. And we'll point them to Jesus for forgiveness of their sins, where they've been in rebellion against it and where they have came short. And we will win. And we will win. Admittedly, the file introduced distortions into relationships between men and women. I know you're thinking, hey, a lot of marriage relationships are oppressive and abusive. What you're saying is awful. It makes room for abuse. Well, are some children abused? Are all children abused? Well, since some are and it makes room for abuse that we say parents should have authority over their children, we should do away with parental authority because it makes room for abuse because some children are abused. Same logic. Yeah, there's abuses. There's bad men out there and they should be held accountable for their actions. 
But that doesn't mean that we deny God's ways being best. We just do the rest of it too. Hold them accountable for their abuses. Call them to repentance. And even prosecute when necessary. Because the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. And we put a social stigma on people that aren't right toward their wives. and We call them to repentance and if they will repent, we put them out of the church. There's checks and balances in God's created order in the relationship of church and state and home. The husband's humble, loving headship sometimes is replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willful submission tends to be replaced by either usurpation on the one side where she becomes dominant or servility where she doesn't say anything at all and just collapses and doesn't really actively contribute because she's not bought into the man's vision at all and isn't encompassed by his worldview or what he's doing and she just basically surrenders because he's a terrible leader and just sits and is wasted. Her value of a woman's wa- as a woman is wasted. But what did Christ do? Redemption in Christ removes the distortions introduced by the curse. Husbands, I call on you, forsake harsh, selfish leadership and grow in love and care for your wives. Wives, forsake resistance to your husband's authority and growing, willing, joyful submission to your husband's leadership. If he's not commanding you to sin, leading you towards sin, then respect and reverence him and follow and try to put your efforts behind him. If you're pulling in different directions, you're not going to get very far. But all in all, you know what we all are in the ultimate sense? We all are the bride of Christ. In Adam, we all die. Him is the covenant head. We're all in big trouble. The whole world was collapsed into sin and in a dependent state. And Jesus came, and from heaven He came and sought His bride. And He now gives an account for us. He stands in the way of all of us, male or female. We're just little images in our marriage relationships of what He is in the ultimate reality. He leads us perfectly and dies on our behalf to purchase for us forgiveness. That's where we rejoice. We look to that and we say, God, thank you for that reality. Thank you for being the perfect bridegroom and help me be the perfect groom, uh, husband as well to my wife. Help me be like you. Help me image you. And wives, help me image you. Uh, help me bear the image of God in my femininity as a wife as well. Looking to you for my justification, but empowered by your spirit to live out these ideals so that we can take your name to the ends of the earth. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us a positive vision for society and for the world. I pray, God, that you'll help us to be unashamed, to reclaim ground that we've given up, and that, uh, that you would bring your blessings and your law to the ends of the earth and, for, and the good news of forgiveness for sins through our message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.